Well, this past, uh, this past year, uh, Emily and I celebrated our 10-year uh, anniversary together. And as I reflect back on our 10 years together, one of the things that I find interesting is just how much of Emily's personality has rubbed off on me at times. Uh, Emily and I actually don't share a whole lot in common apart from our love for Christ. Uh, obviously, we share that in common. That's the most important thing. Uh, apart from that, there's, we don't share a whole lot in common. I mean, we, we both like to watch sports. We both like to travel. We like to hike. We have a similar taste in music. We enjoy fine arts, those types of things. I'm not saying we aren't, we're just totally incompatible, but we have a lot of natural differences too. Um, Emily, for instance, has always been more people-oriented and outgoing, whereas I'm more of the introvert of the two. Uh, she's naturally adventurous. I'm not. Uh, she's very health-conscious. I like fast food and Dr. Pepper. Uh, she's a very frugal person. I'm a free spender. Uh, point is, there are things we share in common, but on the whole, we probably have a lot more differences than we have similarities. We, we even handle our differences differently. Uh, I think if you were to ask Emily, she'd tell you that she finds our differences frustrating. Am I right? A little bit? I think I am. Uh, yeah. She, she'll find them... Yeah. So she'll find those differences, I think, a little frustrating at times. I think they're fun. I like people. Uh, who disagree with me. Again, I enjoy a good argument. Emily does not. Uh, So we can't even agree on our disagreeing. We're so different from one another. Um, That's part of why I enjoy reflecting on how much Emily has rubbed off on me over the years and vice versa. Uh, For instance, I'm definitely uh, more health conscious now than I was when I first married Emily. Uh, Believe it or not, I actually get sick of fast food now, and I prefer a healthy home-cooked meal from time to time. She didn't hear that. Don't tell her I said that, Uh, but it's true. Uh, That never happened before we got married. Um, I'm much more outgoing than what I used to be. I used to dread meeting people. Uh, That's actually gone away. Uh, I actually enjoy it now. Uh, That's mostly Emily's doing, uh, kind of working on me over the years. Well, one thing that I've picked up along the way, and this is kind of oddly enough, uh, is, an, is an enjoyment of puzzles. Uh, you know, jigsaw puzzles. I, I never took time to do those uh, before I got married. Uh, but when life is calm enough, where Emily actually has time to sit down and relax for a little bit, she'll sometimes pull out a jigsaw puzzle and uh, put it together kind of here and there over the course of a few days. Uh, like I said, I would have never have thought to do this before I was married, but as she's put to them together, uh, I've joined in from time to time, and one of the things I've discovered is that I really enjoy jigsaw puzzles. They're actually, they're actually pretty fun. They're pretty relaxing. Uh, I've since learned, as I've started putting these puzzles together with Emily, uh, I've since learned that there's actually a method to putting a jigsaw puzzle together. I didn't know this before. I never thought about this enough before I met Emily to realize this, but there is. Uh, you take a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, and the first thing you want to do when you get that puzzle is you want to start separating out the pieces. Uh, the first place you begin, of course, is with the edge pieces. These are the pieces that are the easiest to identify, and you know where they go. So you sift through those pieces, and you set those aside, uh, because that's where you're going to start with the edge pieces. They're going to provide the framework for your puzzle, and you start working your way in from there. Uh, The very next thing you do is you start sorting pieces by their general color or shade. Uh, Usually you can break a puzzle down into quadrants where you have maybe a house in one corner and a forest in another. 
those are all going to have their own shades of color. And so you separate the pieces out according to those color tones so you don't have to sift through the entire collection of puzzles when you're trying to put that quadrant together. Uh, then you look for the portions of the puzzle with the most definable features. And after you have your edge pieces in place, you start to narrow down the amount of pieces to work with by putting those portions together first. Uh, so if there's a house in one quadrant and then a forest in another, uh, you start with the house. Because the house shapes are easier to discern than twigs and branches in a mass of trees. Uh, finally, after you have those easier portions put together and in place, you turn your attention to the parts that are harder. Uh, again, this might be something with a lot of lines and, and very little variation of color in it, like a forest. But point is, it's the part of the puzzle where you can't just pick up a piece and identify where it goes in relation to its surroundings just by looking at it. Um, first, you have to, if you're going to put that piece in place, uh, usually you're going to follow... Uh, one of two methods, probably a combination of the two methods. Uh, first, you have to study the box. And then you study the piece in question very closely. And you observe every detail you can. And then you try to find that exact detail on the box, if you're, a- if you're able to. And then second, when that fails, and very often that will fail, uh, it's purely trial and error. Uh, you pick up a piece that's the right shape, and then you do the same with another one. And you just try to kind of fit it into the puzzle and see if it goes. In fact, at this point, Emily and I will actually separate out uh, kind of the shapes, uh, you know, the, qu- the quadrant by shapes, uh, because, of course, a jigsaw, is gen- j- jigsaw puzzle is generally only going to have like five or six different shapes. And so we'll separate those out, and then we'll add onto the puzzle by trying each piece of the appropriate shape until one finally locks in. And then we move on. After enough trial and error, trial and error, you'll complete your puzzle and you're done. Uh, if you're particularly lucky, you'll discover you had all the pieces when you started, and there's none of those incredibly frustrating holes left over uh, at the end. Uh, if you've ever put a puzzle together, then then you've probably done all of this uh, as well. I'd imagine I'm not probably sharing anything new with a lot of you. Um, you understand there's a method uh, to putting a puzzle together. Uh, And I don't know about you, but for me, I would say that the most important component in that method, the one indispensable tool above all others, is the box. Am I right? Like, that's the one thing you need probably more than anything else. You need the picture of the completed puzzle to go by in order to know what you're building. Otherwise, you're talking about an incredibly time-consuming and frustrating task. I mean, say you have a thousand-piece puzzle... It's going to take forever to put that together without a box because you simply have no way of narrowing down your options as you go. It's all going to be trial and error because you don't even know what the shapes are supposed to form when you get started. Uh, You might as well just have a pile of of, of blank puzzle pieces uh, because that's how much the designs on the pieces are going to help you if you don't have a completed picture of of the puzzle on the box. The box is absolutely key to the reconstruction of any really challenging puzzle. Well, last week we started to take a look at the Olivet Discourse, which occurs in Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, If you remember, this is a passage in which Jesus is going to explain to his disciples what will occur at the very end of the age. That's the question on their minds when they leave the temple 
at the beginning of Matthew 24, and, and Jesus proceeds to tell them that the entire structure of the temple, which was this massive complex, complex erected with these humongous stones, he says that it's going to be systematically dismantled entirely, brick by brick, right down to the very foundation. It's all coming down as an act of judgment against that generation for their sins. The disciples understand. They see that Jesus is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. And once they grasp this, their thoughts immediately skip ahead into the future because they understand that the Old Testament predicted this, that Jerusalem would be conquered. And they understood it would occur shortly before the restoration of Israel and the establishment of God's kingdom. And so as Jesus talks about the conquest of Jerusalem, they immediately want to know when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're asking the question on everyone's mind. Right? This is something we all want to know about. What's the end of the story like? And when's it going to take place? What is the future going to be like? How does history end? That's the question that Jesus begins to answer as he sits on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city. He just condemned I said last week that I've been hesitant to preach on this passage for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, I said I've hesitated because I think it's very easy to conclude that this is a relatively in, irrelevant uh, topic. Jesus begins discussing a period of tribulation that's going to precede the end of the age. And not only are we going, are we going to see that the focus of this tribulation, the chief purpose for its happening, has primarily to do with Israel, we'll see, and not necessarily the church, not only is that the case, but it's also been almost 2,000 years since Jesus has made this prediction. And nothing's happened. That can make this seem like a very detached, a very abstract, very irrelevant topic for you and I. And so last week I said, let's explore why this topic matters first. And that's what we did. We spent one week in pre-application thinking about why a study of end times, a field of doctrine known as eschatology, why eschatology matters. I gave you four reasons in total. I think we looked at three or four more, three or four more in the evening, and we saw, I think, that this is a very relevant topic. This matters. Second, I said I've hesitated because this can be a very complex topic. Eschatology can be a very complicated and confusing subject. In fact, when you really get down to it, I'd say it's almost like trying to put a puzzle together without the box. I think this is why there are so many opinions on the topic. If you've ever studied eschatology before, then I'd imagine that's probably one of the things that you've found frustrating. Eschatology isn't a doctrine like the Trinity or the deity of Christ I mean, those are subjects that that can be hard to understand. They can be hard to grasp. But all the same, you go back into church history and you have these church councils where the early church fathers got together and said, the entire church agrees that the Trinity should be understood like this. And they said the deity of Christ means that. And we all agree. And everyone who doesn't teach this is anathema. They're not a Christian. They're very specific on that. You don't have that with eschatology. In fact, it would almost seem as if there are as many different interpretations about the end as there are interpreters. I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that when you really get into eschatology, what you find 
is that you have all these passages about the end that are scattered in different places across the Scripture, many of which give you little bits and pieces of information about the end, but without any one single picture to guide you as to where they all fit into place, where they all go. Now, that being said, there are still some landmarks in the puzzle that are relatively easy to discern. Uh, just like you can probably tell that the one, one part of a puzzle is going to be made up of trees and another part appears to be a building, just from the pieces alone, even, with, even if you don't have the box and know how to arrange all those pieces, it's the same with eschatology. There are some key general concepts that everyone can agree are in the puzzle somehow, even if we don't entirely agree on where they go, or even perhaps what they are. I mean, sure, some people are going to think that the building is a house. Uh, Other people are going to say, no, I think it's a barn. You're going to have that sort of thing. Uh, But regardless of the disagreement, we can still see that the puzzle at least includes a building of some type. And, And there's some trees in there as well. We can make out the major landmarks, and from that we can put together a pretty reasonable reconstruction of at least the more clearly defined landmarks, just from the pieces alone. That's not the challenging part in eschatology, just just learning what the landmarks are. No, the challenging part is figuring out how those landmarks interlock with one another. It's the details in between the landmarks, these, these smaller, vaguer pieces of information scattered here and there around the landmarks that can make it hard to distinguish where the landmarks go. In other words, if you could picture a puzzle with a picture of a meadow, you know, there's a, say there's a horse grazing in the field, in a field with a white fence in the foreground. The sun is shining in the clouds in the background. Maybe there's a tree to the side, back in, of the field. What's at issue is less whether or not there's a horse in the puzzle. And more, does that horse go to the right of the tree or to the left? You know, that's, that sun in the background, is it low on the horizon or is it directly overhead? It's the location of the major themes that are in question. When do they happen? Where do they fit in relation to everything else? And it's that meadow, if I can put it this way, it's that meadow in the middle of everything, that part of the picture where you have these fine details that seem like they mesh so well with this concept or that concept that makes it hard to figure out where the landmarks go. And then, if that weren't enough, if I could add this as well, what adds to this confusion is that it would appear that we don't have the right amount of pieces for the picture. You ever have that happen? Again, you're working on a puzzle, and you keep struggling over where to put this one piece, only to realize that at the end, it actually didn't belong to the puzzle in the first place. Or have you ever gotten to the end of the puzzle and realized that in the thousand-piece puzzle, you're missing like three pieces? which is why you had so much trouble with that upper left-hand corner. I mean, how frustrating is that when that happens, right? Well, well, that seems to be the case here as well. In particular, it seems that a lot of times, no matter what scheme people pick for their understanding of the end, they still have a few pieces left in their hand when it's all said and done. And they have to explain those extra pieces. In other words, their, their configuration looks like a complete puzzle, but you're left going, at the end, you're left asking, yeah, but, but what about this passage? Or what about that statement? That doesn't seem to fit your scheme. And so each side tries to do its best at explaining why the pieces they're holding are just extra pieces, why they don't actually belong to the puzzle in the way that so many people suppose. 
Now, by the time we're done, uh, I think you'll see that my approach is going to be a little different and that I don't know that we'll have leftover pieces so much, uh, but I think we're definitely going to have some gaps left over in the picture when we're done. Uh, so I would agree that I don't think we have the right number of pieces uh, to complete the picture, but what I'm going to argue is that it's not because we're dealing with too many pieces, some of which belong to a different puzzle, but too few. Like I'm going to say, I think this goes here, this piece goes here, and I think this probably raises a question about what happens after that, but I don't know that we have the data to know that. I don't know, that, I don't know what goes in that gap. I don't think we have that piece. And I think that's okay. It's okay to come to that answer. Like I said last week, I don't think God intends to tell us every single detail about the end. There's supposed to be a bit of mystery in all of this. But point is, this adds to the confusion. Not only do we have a picture, not have a picture, to show us where the meadow pieces go, but it doesn't even seem that we have the right amount of pieces. Either we're, we're pulling in concepts that don't apply to eschatology, or we're missing some key ideas here and there, but there are these parts that just don't seem to fit no matter what scheme you come up with. So this is tough. This is hard work. And that's part of the reason why I've hesitated to teach on this topic. So in light of that, this is what we're going to do over the next few weeks. As we move through Matthew 24, uh, I'm going to explain my understanding of the timing of Jesus' return as best as I can. I'm going to try to describe for you my reconstruction of the puzzle where I believe all the pieces go. But what I want to do first over the next few weeks is just orient you to the major landmarks in the puzzle. You see, there's a sense in which, even as I explain these ideas, you're going to have to reconstruct the puzzle for yourself. As we go through various passages over the next few weeks, we're going to be dealing with a lot of different concepts at once, which you're going to have to try to fit all together in your head as you try to get a grip on this topic. And so rather than begin by moving the pieces around and saying, I think this goes here and I think that goes there, I want to tell you just what's in the puzzle first, okay? I want to show you, you know, this is a a puzzle of a horse grazing in a meadow. He's inside a fence. The sun is shining overhead. This is a nice country scene. This isn't an ocean scene. This isn't an urban scene. I just want to describe that much for you. And then once that's established, we can start to use Matthew 24 to figure out where the major landmarks go in relation to one another. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. We're starting by looking at the major landmarks in the puzzle. And we're going to do that by defining several major eschatological concepts, several major concepts related to the end. Understand, the disciples don't ask this question in Matthew 24 in a vacuum. There's a rich eschatological tradition already established by the Old Testament, which they're bringing to this discussion when they ask this question. In other words, they already have a foundational understanding of the end when Jesus begins his answer. It's why they're even able to ask this question in the first place. They know enough to know that when Jesus talks about the capture of Jerusalem, he's talking about the end. That prompts their question. In his response, Jesus is going to work with that foundation. He's going to assume that they already understand some key concepts and even some key passages as he explains that all to them. 
And, and this means that if you don't have that background going into this answer, you're going to be lost. So what I want to do is start by bringing you up to speed with what the disciples know by the time the Olivet Discourse begins. Of course, they don't seem to have the order of everything worked out. That's why they're asking Jesus about the sign of His coming. They're still not sure about the timing of everything. Jesus is going to straighten that out for them. But the core concepts, that's what they would have understood. And it's what Jesus is going to arrange for them. Just so you know, when we're dealing with the chronology of last things, I'd say that there are three main places that you need to look in Scripture. This is just if you're dealing with the chronology of things. Uh, And those uh, three places are first the book of Daniel, uh, particularly the end of Daniel 9, and the end of Daniel 11 through chapter 12. Uh, The book of Daniel is particularly concerned with the order of the end, and I'd say that it really even serves as the foundation for discussions like the Olivet Discourse. So that's a very important place to go, the book of Daniel. Uh, The second place to uh, go to get a grip on chronology is the Olivet Discourse. Uh, The disciples ask a question about timing here, so obviously this is a good place to go to understand timing. Uh, The Olivet Discourse, by the way, is recorded in three different Gospels. Uh, It occurs in Matthew 24 and 25, uh, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And just so you know, there are some important differences in these accounts, uh, which we're going to touch on as we go. The third place to look for chronology is the book of Revelation. Now, I should probably state up front, I don't think that Revelation is meant to be precisely chronological. I think it does jump around some. And the reason it can do that is because by the time it's written, both Daniel and the Olivet Discourse provide enough detail about order to be able to discern the right arrangement of that material. However, what's useful about Revelation is that it then fills in some extra information uh, and provides a chronology for a few events that Daniel and the Olivet Discourse do not touch on. Uh, Daniel and the Olivet Discourse don't give a comprehensive list of, of, of order or sequence for the end. There's some other things that have, been, have come up in the Old Testament that they don't explain. Revelation fills that in. Um, so these three together, uh, Daniel, uh, the Olivet Discourse, and Revelation, they're what I like to think of as the edge pieces to the puzzle. Uh, while they don't fill in all the details that you need to to have to see the big picture. They flesh out the basic structure of the end. Uh, If I could put it this way, they they give a skeleton to add flesh to. They provide a framework to add walls and windows and doors to. Okay, So we're going to touch on these passages often. Daniel, all of the discourse, Revelation. Uh, But just for today, I want to try to focus as much as I can on the Old Testament. Uh, That's what the disciples would be bringing to the table Uh, at the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, so that's where I want to begin. And we're going to start by looking first at some major, major, what I'd say are really core concepts, and then I'll try to work my way down to some smaller details that are going to come up during the Olivet Discourse in in the next couple of weeks. So today I want to start by looking at just three, three main eschatological events, which are kind of the base for all the others. Uh, If you're familiar with construction, you can think of these as kind of the load-bearing walls. Uh, Other stuff is going to be built around these ideas, but these are the concepts that are holding everything else up. And the first foundational event on our agenda is the millennium. The millennium. The term millennium uh, comes from a passage in Revelation chapter 20 where it says, 
uh, Revelation 21 to 6. By the way, as we go, uh, I'm going to just I'm going to kind of plow through for time uh, purposes. So I'm, I'm going to go fast. If you want to follow along, of course you can follow along. Uh, flip to the passages as we go, but I'm I'm going to just go as quickly as I can because we have a lot to talk about here. So uh, Revelation 21 to 6 says this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that uh, he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been, been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. You go back to the Old Testament, and one of the most consistent themes throughout both the major and the minor prophets was this expectation that Israel would one day enjoy an eternal and global dominion over the earth under the reign of a Messianic Davidic king. Uh, this promise is rooted in the, in the Davidic covenant, which is established in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, in that covenant, God promises King David, quote, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will, rise, uh, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, you look at this promise, and clearly it it promises multiple descendants, uh, many of whom will be disobedient, we see, But what's unique about this promise is that although God says He will discipline these descendants, He will yet not remove the throne over Israel from the house of David. In other words, this is an unconditional, eternal covenant. God made an irrevocable promise that the Davidic throne would not depart from Israel. Now, flash forward several hundred years, and by the time that Judah has gone into exile, it would appear that perhaps this promise has been made in vain. Not long after the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, any semblance of Davidic authority was completely removed from Israel. And so as the people sat in exile, they did so wondering how God would fulfill this promise that He made with David. Perhaps even whether He would fulfill this promise. God then proceeds to speak through the prophets, and He tells Israel that He has not abandoned His covenant with David, He is going to send another Davidic descendant. Only this one, he says, is going to be categorically different than every other one. His dominion, he says, is going to be a global dominion. And his throne will not perish. In other words, the Davidic promise is going to be fulfilled through him. 
This kingdom will occur, God explains, after this Davidic king has gathered in the people of Israel from the exile that, that they've been under and reestablished them under a unified Israel. Some of the passages that relate to this promise are incredibly familiar. Uh, for instance, Isaiah 9, 1-7 says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Again, a a, a promise of restoration for Israel. He says, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and of his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There you see the eternal nature of this kingdom. There will be no end to the increase of his government and of peace, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, it says. Clearly, he is a Davidic king, and he comes after God has brought contempt upon the land, and he gives him an eternal throne. Of the ingathering of Israel under this king, Isaiah 11, 10-16 says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire? And his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the, rem- the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So again, he's gathering Israel together from across the earth and he's assembling them back in their own land. And of course, he's doing this under the reign of this root of Jesse, this descendant of David. This is a very important and consistent concept, the return of Israel from exile. Uh, we're going to be talking about this a lot during the Olivet Discourse. In our scripture reading this morning, we read Ezekiel 37:15 to 28. And in that passage, we find several familiar themes going on that we just talked about. You have the ingathering of Israel coming up again. Uh, you have a promise of a permanent eternal restoration of Israel, but there in the midst of it, you also have this promise that there will be one shepherd, one Davidic king reigning over all Israel. One king shall be over them, God says. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. The idea is that there is a future kingdom coming in Israel, one over which a Davidic king will reign forever, once again. Further, what we see in places like Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 is that this is a global kingdom. 
Last week I talked about how uh, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the statue with the head of gold and how from that dream he predicted that there would be four, you could almost say five, uh, kingdoms that will reign over the earth until the end. Uh, There's the head of gold, Babylon, the chest and the arms of silver, uh, Medo-Persia, the torso and the thighs of bronze, which is Greece, and then the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay, which represents Rome, and then a divided and weakened Rome. At the end of that dream, a stone that's cut by no human hand comes and strikes the image at its feet, and the whole statue crumbles, and the stone becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. When Daniel interprets this dream, he says with respect to this stone, quote, And in the, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Likewise, immediately after the vision of the four beasts in Daniel 7, which also represents these four kingdoms, Daniel sees this vision of a son of man. And he says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there, was one like a, there, uh, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Both of these passages obviously refer to a coming Davidic king who likewise, of course, possesses an everlasting kingdom. In fact, in Amos 9, 11 and 12, it even says plainly, quote, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. The eternal global dominion is God's kingdom, and it's ruled by His chosen Davidic king. We see this spelled out in several other places in Scripture as well. Uh, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 speak of the Son of David conquering all the nations of the earth. Isaiah 2, 2-4 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Once again, Israel's kingdom is depicted as a global kingdom. All the nations of the earth are streaming up to Jerusalem to worship God and to obey their king. Global dominion. Global dominion accompanied by global Peace, all under a single Davidic king, ruling over restored national Israel. This is the hope of Old Testament saints like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. In fact, this is precisely what the disciples are anticipating when they ask Jesus this question about the sign of His coming on the Mount of Olives. They believe that He is the Messiah, of course. They think, they understand He's the Davidic king. Well, Jesus has just said that Israel is going to be under judgment until the people say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a reference to Psalm 18, or 118, which is a psalm that's really about the restoration of Israel. 
Jesus has spoken of this terrible affliction that Israel is going to experience. In the meantime, what the disciples want to know is, so when is this all going to end? When is that psalm going to be sung? When are you going to restore Israel? After Jesus rises from the dead, they'll ask him the same question again. In Acts 1.6, they look at the resurrected Jesus, and they ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is just the overwhelming hope of every true Old Testament saint. The restoration of Israel under a Davidic king, and with it the fulfillment of every promise made to Abraham and his descendants, even, I would say, the fulfillment of the promise made to the serpent to bring a descendant from the offspring of Adam who would crush his head. That's what you see unfolding back in Revelation 20. Satan is bound. The serpent is defeated. Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled. And there is peace on earth under the reign of God's Messiah for a thousand years. And this is why I use the phrase millennium to refer to the coming Davidic kingdom. It's widely assumed that the promise of a global eternal dominion granted to a son of David is fulfilled in Revelation 20. And since this kingdom lasts for a thousand years, a millennium, it is often referred to as the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom. After the millennium comes what we might call the eternal state. That's the second concept for this morning, the eternal state. I'm not going to comment much on the eternal state, both because we simply don't know much about it, actually, and because it doesn't appear to be something that was described in great detail in the Old Testament. Most of the Old Testament descriptions of the future seem to refer more to the time of the coming Davidic kingdom, not the eternal state. So it's really not, really, really not clear how much the disciples would have anticipated something after that. After all, the Davidic kingdom is described as a perpetual one. His reign is forever. However, what we see in the New Testament is that after the millennial reign of the Messiah is completed, the heavens and the earth are consumed and replaced with the new heavens and earth, according to passages like 2 Peter 3. Additionally, a new Jerusalem descends out of heaven to the new earth. Uh, The dimensions of the city are absolutely massive, almost 1,400 miles wide and deep and high. A gigantic city. If those figures are literal, which I think they seem to be, then perhaps this even tells us something of the dimensions of this new earth. After all, if the city comes down out of heaven to rest on the new earth is this huge, then we'd have to assume that the new planet is equally massive to host such a city. Again, it's not entirely clear. We're speculating there. But what is clear is that this new heavens and new earth with its new Jerusalem, they all happen after the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ on the present earth. This is every, everyone's agreed on this. Jesus reigns in some fashion... Not everyone agrees on how that happens, but he reigns in some fashion on the earth during the millennium. Again, people may disagree about the nature and the length of this kingdom, but everyone agrees that it takes place in some form on the present earth. That means it obviously has to precede the eternal state in which the present heavens and the earth are consumed and replaced with the new heavens and earth. So again, everyone agrees that the eternal state follows the millennium. And everyone has agreed that Jesus is physically present in the New Jerusalem during the eternal state. After all, Revelation 21, 22-23 states, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That's Jesus. So again, everyone agrees that Jesus will be present in the eternal state. What people are not agreed on 
is when Jesus comes in relation to this millennial kingdom. Does he come at the end of the millennium and immediately before the eternal state? Or does he come before both the millennium and the eternal state? The answer you arrive at will dramatically affect how you interpret the timing of our next point, which is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a concept that is scattered throughout multiple Old Testament passages and forms a major theme among the prophets, particularly the group we call the minor prophets. Although it's called the day of the Lord, it's widely accepted that it's longer than a literal 24-hour period, if for no other reason than the sheer number of events that are predicted for that day. Uh, If you've ever heard the phrase, back in my day, then that gives you some insight into how this term is used. Uh, We can use day to refer to an age or period of time. And it's the same way with the day of the Lord. It's an extended period of time. And it's a terrible day. Zephaniah calls it a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. In Joel 2, 2, Joel Joel calls it a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And in Joel 2, 31, he calls it simply great and awesome. Or perhaps more literally, great and terrifying. It's an awe filled with humility and trembling that's described here. You might even call it the great and awful day of the Lord because it's awful in the true sense of that word. It's a time of such terrible devastation that it literally fills one with awe. That is, it fills one with amazement and fear. What happens during that awful day? Well, there are multiple descriptions that give us a variety of answers. Uh, Chiefly, it's a day filled with cataclysmic events on the earth and in the sky. We're talking incredibly devastating geological and even astronomical events. According to Isaiah 24, God will, quote, empty the earth in that day and make it desolate, and he shall twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. So, extreme earthquakes, it would seem, are taking place. Isaiah even says that in that day, the earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. And he says the reason is because, quote, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violating the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. The picture described is of the earth squirming in agony under the weight of of human sin, which is expressed in various geological catastrophes. Later in the chapter, he goes on to describe it like a drunkard or like a poorly constructed hut with a roof that's too heavy to bear, saying, quote, the earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. It is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it will fall and not rise again. Joel points up to the heaven... And he says that in that day God will, quote, show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. He says that the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This echoes the words of Isaiah. Again, in chapter 24, when he speaks of the moon being confounded and the sun ashamed. Just so you know, that's language that Jesus is going to pick up here in Matthew 24, in Matthew 24:29, he speaks of the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light. 
and even of the stars falling down from the heavens and the powers of the heavens being shaken. So again, the day of the Lord is a time of terrible cataclysmic changes. And it's also a time characterized by extreme war and famine. Particularly, it would seem, towards Israel. Again, the day of the Lord is a term that describes a general period of judgment. In fact, it seems to apply to some past events of judgment as well as to some future ones. Well, in Ezekiel 7, which appears to be a passage that describes events that occurred during the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, God cries out, Behold the day, behold it comes. Before going on to say, They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle, for my wrath is upon all their multitude. Uh, the sword is without, pestilence and famine are within. He who is, is in the field dies by the sword, and him who is in the city famine and pestilence devour. And if any survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valley, all of them moaning, each one over his own iniquity. Regarding a future day of the Lord, the prophet Joel describes a great army saying, quote, like a blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will again after them through the years of all generations. He says, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. That's Joel 2, 2-3. to And in verse 12, he notes that, quote, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Again, drawing on this theme of cataclysmic signs in the heavens and on the earth. Once again, describing what he will do in this day, God says in Zephaniah 1, 17-18, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make to all the inhabitants of the earth. Again, he says, all the earth shall be consumed in this day. It's perhaps due to passages like this one that Peter would later associate the destruction of the heavens and the earth with the creation of the new heavens of the earth in 2 Peter 3 with the day of the Lord. There he says in verse 10, 2 Peter 3 verse 10, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He then urges his readers to pursue holiness in light of this coming judgment, saying in verses 11 to 13, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to this promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Again, this is a day of utter destruction and wrath, even culminating, it would seem, in the very destruction of the earth and the ushering in of the eternal state. It is described as a day of wrath, as a day of vengeance, when God punishes the peoples of the earth for their sins. In particular, it is the nations of the earth that seem to be in God's crosshairs. According to Isaiah 2, he means to humble the nations for their pride and their idolatry. He says this, Isaiah 2, 12 to 21. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, 
against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth." So again, he's going to humble the nations, it would appear, with his wrath. This judgment appears to culminate in the coming of the Messiah, who smashes the nations of the earth to pieces with an unprecedented display of might and wrath. Once again, this judgment is alluded to in passages like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Zechariah describes it like this in Zechariah 14, 1-4. He says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you, from you, uh, that's regarding Jerusalem, he says, from the, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. He says, then the Lord will go out and fight against the nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a wide, very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. There, there again, you see the nations gathering against Israel for battle, God going out and fighting them on this day. It would appear that much of the reason for this judgment is uh, the nation's persecution of the people of Israel. For example, it says in Obadiah 1, 15-16, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. So once again, we have the nations swarming around Israel to devour her, and God judges the nations for that sin. And it would appear that Israel will participate in the victory of that day. As it says in the very next two verses in Obadiah, I just read to you Obadiah 1, 15-16. In Obadiah 17 and 18 it says, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Of course, Edom in particular is, is singled out, in this passage, but in Zechariah 12, we see a similar passage in which the nations of the earth gather around Israel to lay siege to it, and Israel is suddenly empowered by God to overcome them. It says that the day of the Lord will make the feeblest among Judah like the mighty warrior David, and he says that he will make the house of David like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. So it's a day of, of global persecution towards Israel which God will then use to judge with great wrath the nations of the earth while allowing Israel to have a hand in the victory. And yet, interestingly enough, uh, this day, it would also seem, is a day of severe discipline upon Israel. 
This would, be appear to, this would appear to be why Amos rebukes those who eagerly anticipate the coming of that day, saying in Amos 5, 18-24, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, and went into a, the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. It is not the day of the uh, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. For even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, like an ever flowing stream. You look at this passage, and from it we can see that there would appear to be Israelites who are thinking of the oppression, that they're suffering in exile, and they're longing for the day of the Lord, when God is going to come and deliver them. They're even eagerly anticipating the destruction of the Gentile nations. And so Amos tells them, don't you get it? God has put you into exile for your sin." And and don't you understand what this means? It means that before he destroys the nations, he must afflict you to the point of repentance. This is not a day that you should be looking forward to. This is what he means by fleeing from a lion and finding a bear. They want to be free from the oppression of the Gentiles, but they don't understand that in the process, God is going to deal with them for their sin in that day as well. So the discipline of Israel, that's included in the day of the Lord as well. Now, in part, and only in part, it's for this last reason that we would see the Great Tribulation as a subset of the Day of the Lord. Now, if you don't know what the Great Tribulation is, don't worry. Uh, I'm going to describe that in detail in a couple of weeks. That's really going to be the bulk of what Jesus explains in Matthew 24. He's going to discuss details related to the Great Tribulation. So we'll get oriented to that concept in a couple of weeks and how it relates to the Day of the Lord. The question that we should be asking in the meantime is, in what order do these three events that I just described this morning happen? And where does Jesus come in relation to the kingdom? That's a matter that's been a subject of significant debate over the years. Uh, Some people say that the millennium comes first, uh, and then the day of the Lord in the eternal state, and, and the idea is that Jesus comes first with the millennium, uh, and then the day of the Lord, and then the eternal state. Other people say that the day of the Lord comes before, and kind of even during the millennium, that Jesus comes at the beginning, not at the end, and then the eternal state comes. Uh, the reason why that's uh, been has been a matter of debate, because there are different opinions about the nature of the kingdom that's described in the Old Testament and in Revelation 20. And I want to talk about that issue next week. Uh, your position on the kingdom, what you believe that millennium is, what it's about, is going to affect how you interpret the Olivet Discourse and when Jesus comes in relation to that kingdom. Does He come at the beginning of it or the end? Uh, Unfortunately, though, Jesus doesn't really address that issue directly here. That's going to affect the way you interpret this passage. But Jesus doesn't address the timing of that here. It would seem, rather, that He just assumes His disciples understand the kind of kingdom to expect and when He's going to come in relation to the kingdom. And so given the amount of disagreement on the matter, this is an assumption that we can't make, I don't think. And so before we take a look at the Great Tribulation, I want to answer this question uh, next week. Is the Millennial Kingdom before the Day of the Lord 
or after? And does Jesus come back before the millennial kingdom or after? Uh, Frankly, I'm just not really sure when else we're going to discuss this. And again, I think this is going to set us up well for Matthew 24. So that's what we'll discuss next week. Uh, In the meantime, I'd invite you to come back uh, for a discussion of today's message tonight at 6 o'clock. Let's pray.